ucora.com. I'm Shannon Bream. Countdown to the ground invasion. Tens of thousands of Israeli troops prepare to enter northern Gaza with the stated goal of eradicating Hamas, the group responsible for the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. As hundreds of thousands of Palestinian civilians try to flee the area ahead of the offensive, food and water running out, fueling fears of a humanitarian disaster. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Riyadh in an effort to prevent the unrest from spreading throughout the Mideast. There's an unrelenting agony of not knowing the fate of their loved ones. Death tolls rise, Americans unaccounted for, and more held hostage as the world watches the catastrophic scenes pour in from the Israeli-Hamas war. Pressure is on the White House to bring the nation's own back home. We're working around the clock to secure the release. We sit down with National Security Council Communications Coordinator John Kirby on the administration's plan to save those stranded in the middle of war. And we have not yet had a dollar of that six billion spent. The U.S. quietly blocking Iran from billions in dollars of previously unfrozen funds after harsh Republican criticism that the deal could have paved the way for the Hamas attacks. We'll get reaction from Republican Tom Cotton, member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who's introducing a bill to immediately block Iranian access to those funds. Then. Debate ignites on college campuses as top universities are left at odds with student groups over support for either the Israeli or Palestinian people. We'll ask former senator and current University of Florida President Ben Sass how education leaders should handle the heated clashes. Plus, I just share with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the speaker designee. The search for a new House speaker takes another twist. The former speaker's heir apparent bows out. But can the new leader of the pack rally the support needed to secure the gavel? We'll ask our Sunday panel about the urgency to elect a speaker as the Israel-Hamas war escalates. All right now on Fox News Sunday. from Fox News in Washington. It has been a week since Israel declared war after a series of coordinated deadly surprise attacks by Hamas. This look at the region gives you a, a view into where Israel has been counterattacking, where there have been airstrikes, of course, all through the Gaza Strip. But also to the north, there have been incursions involving Hezbollah and into Lebanon. Now, let's take a look because we're talking now about trying to evacuate that area, at least portions of it, and get people to move. This is the most densely populated area here to the north, Gaza City. That is going to be a contentious, heated part of this battle. So, of course, the call has been for people to move to the south. Keep in mind, though, for evacuations, this is a fully fortified border. Israel is not going to allow passage from the Gaza Strip into these areas. So what does that leave for the people? Well, there is a crossing into Egypt, but there's been much dispute about whether or not people have been allowed to cross there. And in what numbers? There are also reports this morning that Hamas is not allowing people to leave, that it is blocking them from being able to get out of these most dangerous areas. In a moment, we will bring in John Kirby from the National Security Council and Senator Tom Cotton. But first, let's turn to Trey Yanks live on the ground in Israel. 
Shannon, good morning. It's day number nine of the war between Israel and Gaza. Here in southern Israel, preparations continue for a massive ground operation. We have seen thousands of Israeli infantry troops, tanks and APCs all waiting along the border for those orders to enter the Gaza Strip. You can see behind me a large explosion in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. The Israelis continue to strike Gaza ahead of an expected ground operation. Right now, there's a massive rocket barrage coming off the Gaza Strip. You can see one rocket after another appears to be toward the center of Israel. Day and night, Israel continues to hit Hamas positions inside Gaza. The death toll there quickly ticking up to more than 2,300 people, many women and children among the dead. We do know that factions inside Gaza, including Hamas and Islamic Jihad, continue to fire rockets into southern and central Israel. Air raid sirens sounding today across Tel Aviv. This comes as thousands of Gazans continue to try to flee south following warnings by the Israeli military that they do plan to enter the Gaza Strip and that anyone left in Gaza City could be killed or injured. Shifting north, we should discuss the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah just along the border today between Israel and Lebanon. There have been five anti-tank guided missile attacks and there are casualties reported. This is very quickly turning into a multi-front conflict. To give you a sense of the morale of the soldiers in the Israeli military, we've spoken with dozens of them. They say they're scared, but they are ready to fight. They've seen the images, what took place last weekend, the massacre of more than 1,300 people in southern Israel. One soldier coming up to our cameras simply saying, tell the world we will win. Shannon. Trey Yanks reporting from southern Israel. Thank you so much for your work there, Trey. Joining us now, National Security Council Communications Coordinator John Kirby. Admiral, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to start from increasing statements. Um, Axios reported this last night about Iran sending a message to Israel on Saturday stressing it doesn't want further escalation in the Hamas-Israel war, but that it will have to intervene if the Israeli operation in Gaza continues. By all accounts, that is what's going to happen. They're talking about intervening, getting involved. What does that say to you? How do you interpret that? And how worried are you about them getting off, you know, what is indirectly probably on the sidelines for them right now? We are worried about the potential escalation and widening of this conflict. We don't want to see any actor, be it a state actor like Iran or another terrorist group like Hezbollah, widening this conflict, opening up additional fronts that will distract the Israeli Defense Forces from their primary fight against Hamas. And that is why the president ordered the USS Gerald R. Ford carrier strike group into the eastern Mediterranean as a strong deterrent message. And that is why we also just recently announced that the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower carrier and and her escort ships will be heading that way uh, to be uh, available for regional deterrent operations. That asks the question then about those assets in the area. Our next guest, Senator Tom Cotton, has said special operations forces should be there. They have an obligation to get Americans out, especially those we think may be being held hostage. Would we have U.S. boots on the ground for that or any other operation you can see? So let me take this in chunks. There's no plans or intentions to put U.S. troops on the ground to fight in this uh, fight between but Israel retrieve Americans? and Hamas. We are actively trying to find out exactly where they are. I mean, Shannon, we don't even know how many exactly. We saw a small handful we know, but there could be more than we know. They could be in different groups. They could be moved around. Um, I think you can understand, I hope everybody can understand, that we're going to be careful about what we say publicly about our efforts to get those hostages home. Secretary Blinken's in the region right now, traveling around. This is high on his agenda. I can tell you we're working this literally by the hour. But we're not going to get ahead of where we are in terms of policy options since we don't have necessarily all the information we need to try to get them home. I will say last thing, and I promise I'll stop, is 
uh, this is obviously high on the prior, prior, president's priority list. Mm-hmm. Nothing's more important to him than the safety and security of Americans that are held hostage overseas, and we're not going to stop until we can get them back with their families. Would you absolutely rule out the possibility of any kind of U.S. forces being on the ground there? What I won't do is rule anything in or out when it comes to getting our hostages home. Uh, we're, we're working on this literally by the hour. But again, in, in order for you to develop specific policy options, you got to have a lot more contextual information than, than it's available to us right now. And so, we're working at that. So let's talk about Iran's involvement. You know, the Wall Street Journal had reporting there was direct involvement with this, saying Iranian security officials helped plan Hamas's Saturday surprise attack on Israel and gave the green light for the assault at a meeting in Beirut last Monday. They, they cite numerous different sources. They talk about multiple meetings in Beirut. Yeah. Washington Post says this, even if you don't see the direct link yet, they quote a Western intelligence official saying, if you train people on how to use weapons, you expect them to eventually use them. Does the White House need a direct link on this specific attack to hold Iran in some way accountable? Well, of course, Iran is broadly complicit here. And of course, the resourcing and training they've given to Hamas has obviously helped Hamas function and be able to conduct the terrorist attacks that they have been able to conduct. Um, We have held Iran accountable. The attacks on our troops in Iraq and Syria have greatly decreased because of our retaliatory strikes. There's the longest truce in Yemen now in place, saving literally tens of thousands of Yemeni lives. We have added military capabilities into the Gulf region, additional ships, a different aircraft. Now we're, we're bolstering our military presence in the Eastern Med. There should be no anybody mistaken the fact that we haven't held, uh, continue to hold Iran accountable. Think about the support they're giving to Russia and Ukraine and the additional sanctions that we put on them for sending drone technology. So of course we're holding them accountable. Now, Shannon, we're looking specifically at the intel stream as much as we can. That work hasn't happened, or sorry, it hasn't stopped. We just haven't seen anything in the intel that we've been looking at that directly points to specific participation by Iran in these attacks. That doesn't mean we aren't still looking for it, just haven't found it. I've seen the press reporting. We're not able to corroborate that. So when you say holding them accountable, you know the pushback you're going to get on that. A lot of people out there say we unfreeze $6 billion of their money, but giving them access to that, that doesn't look like we're punishing them. Uh, And there are questions about whether we can even, as there's been talk of, quote, quietly freezing it, if we can do that. Andy McCarthy, one of our colleagues writing over at National Review, says with the ransom already paid and the hostages released, what legal mechanism does the administration have to compel Qatar to return the funds to U.S. control such that they could be frozen, redirected and otherwise kept out of Tehran's coffers? He says, can you do that? Is there actually a string attached somewhere? And if not, why not? Why would we open up six billion dollars to them without some kind of strings to pull it back if in a situation like this? So not a dime has been spent. Correct. Not a dime has been accessed. The Iranian regime never gets it. The money was never frozen when it was in South Korea any more than it was frozen when it got to Qatar. And it was part of a series of accounts set up by the Trump administration. There was no hue and cry back then when Secretary Pompeo announced these accounts and that the Iranians spent down billions of dollars from the other accounts for what was supposed to be humanitarian purposes. But we don't really know. None of that. We can't account for that. I can only account for that six billion. And it's all still in Qatar. None of it has been accessed, and we're watching it Will like a Will they ever hawk. be able to access it? Is it truly that, that you can refreeze it, in essence, or whatever terminology you'd like to use, so they don't have access to it? They, they have not accessed it. We, we are watching that, it. We're watching they? it like a hawk, Shannon. I'm, I'm telling you that, that we are keeping tabs on every single dime of that. None of it is accessed by the Iranians. And even if it was, even if it was, it would go to vendors that we approve to, to buy food 
water, medicine, and ship it in uh, to Iran, right to the Iranian people through humanitarian aid organizations. The regime never never sees it. But, but and fair I've, to say that it relieves other financial obligations yeah, for them. If they know that they can get help yeah. on these other fronts through money yeah. coming in. Yeah. I mean, the State Department tells us that yeah. Iran gives $100 billion a year in support to Palestinian terror groups. This is the fungibility argument, which is also a false argument, too. It's not like the Iranians were sitting around saying, hmm, well, we have $6 billion that we can free up to, to, to go fund terrorists and not feed our, we don't have to worry about feeding our people. They never were worried about feeding their people. They were never worried about actual humanitarian assistance to their own population. And again, they don't have any access to it. The other argument is that the, 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 the support to terrorists, that, that has been longstanding under previous administrations as well. So why and it's it not like we haven't, we haven't made it easier, Shannon. We have, in this administration alone, just in the two and a half years the president's been in office, 400 entities sanctioned for a range of reasons, 30, uh, 30 additional sanction regimes and 300 entities just in the last year alone. And again, we've increased our military presence. This idea that we're just somehow turning a blind eye, whistling past a graveyard as Iran supports terrorist networks is just not true. Let me ask you about the southern border, because obviously the chaos there... The openness, you can argue about that, but I mean, record numbers of people showing up there, record numbers of people who are either on a terror list or associated with somebody who is a family member, an associate. We're at record numbers for those. How worried are you as somebody who is, your job is national security, that we have an issue there with somebody who would be a bad actor, a copycat, or a terrorist cell? We're, we're, we're concerned about the potential spillover from the war against Hamas. Uh, in terms of domestic security. That's why days ago, I mean, within a day or two of the attacks, the president ordered the team, the national security team uh, and the Department of Homeland Security to work with state and local authorities to make sure that we have the intel picture in place to be able to identify and potentially disrupt any domestic terror threat as a result of, uh, of what's going on uh, against uh, Hamas. And I will tell you that even as we were speaking here this morning, we simply don't have any specific credible threat to speak to. But that doesn't mean we're not looking very, very hard. Admiral, we always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You bet. All right, joining us now, Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican who serves on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator, welcome back. Um, let's start with this conversation about U.S. boots on the ground. Um, you heard Admiral Kirby say not ruling anything in or out, but you've called for special operators to go in. We have specially trained warriors in the Army and the Navy whose main mission is to rescue American hostages wherever they may be. Uh, of course, those decisions have to be made based on the intelligence and the facts on the ground, but it should never be ruled out that American soldiers will save American lives. This is the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust, but it's also one of the worst terrorist attacks on the American people in recent times as well. We now have 29 Americans killed and at latest reporting 14 who are unaccounted for. So if there is an opportunity for America's elite warriors to save American citizens, that's the responsibility of our government. It's not the responsibility of the government of Israel. So we're all now still trying to make sense of this. I don't think we can. Um, Hamas operates in a way that, well, I don't know if this is just about sheer terror, if it was just trying to take Jewish lives or what it was. Um, but there's one opinion piece over the New York Times has this theory, perhaps because Hamas knew that Israel would then respond by inflicting even more suffering on Gazans in ways that would make Hamas more popular. Do you worry that what's happening now will lend credence to the argument that Hamas makes to disaffected young people, that Israel is the oppressor, that it needs to be wiped out? No, Shannon. Uh, Hamas is dedicated to the destruction of Israel as a nation and the death of the Jewish people. That's in their charter. Um, Israel has inflicted no suffering on Gaza. Hamas is responsible for the suffering in Gaza. 
They've been in charge there for 16 years. They didn't have to spend the billions of dollars they get from countries like Iran on things like tunnels and missiles. They could have spent it on water and power plants. Hamas is the only, the only their sole responsibility for any suffering the people of Gaza have currently have already had or for any civilian casualties in Gaza because Hamas intentionally uses women and children and the elderly for human shields. And, and if, if you don't want your hospitals or your schools or your mosque bombed, you shouldn't use them for military purposes. But you know the images that we're going to get. They're going to say this is Israel. They are carpet bombing and blanketing um, the Gaza Strip in a way that leaves, first of all, food and water cut off, a humanitarian crisis and destruction there. Shannon, as far as I'm concerned, Israel can bounce the rubble in Gaza. Anything that happens in Gaza is the responsibility of Hamas. Hamas killed women and children in Israel last weekend. If women and children die in Gaza, it will be because Hamas is using, using them as human shields, because they're not currently allowing them to uh, evacuate, as Israel has asked them to do so. Gaza it is the responsibility of Hamas. And if Hamas uses schools and kindergartens and mosques for military purposes, Israel has every right under the laws of war to strike back. And it is, it is Hamas that's committing war crimes by using those civilians to create the imagery to try to put pressure on the Biden administration, to cave, to not do what, he, what President Biden says he's going to do in Ukraine, which is to back them for as long as it takes. If we can back Ukraine for as long as it takes, surely we can back Israel for as long as it takes. So I want to talk about this issue of Iran. Obviously, they have supported these groups. Whether there's a direct link here or not, the administration's still not willing to say. But um, one of your colleagues in the Senate um, had this to say earlier in the week about us potentially going directly after Iran. Here's Senator Graham. If you escalate the war by urging Hezbollah to attack Israel in the north, if Hamas kills one American or Israeli hostage, we're going to blow up your oil refineries and put you out of business. It is now time to take the war to the Ayatollah's backyard. Do you agree? Do you think that's an unnecessary provocation that could turn this into a regional or even world war? Well, first off, it's the Obama-Biden policy that has emboldened Iran now, going back more than a decade, giving them hundreds of billions of dollars in sanctions relief. And I have to say the arguments from John Kirby now are so unpersuasive and so disingenuous to be offered only in bad faith. Everybody knows that Iran got $6 billion in ransom. And as you said, Shannon, that $6 billion freed up $6 billion that otherwise would have gone to other purposes. They got $10 billion of payments through Iraq that this administration approved. They got over $40 billion of relief and just refusal to enforce to the max the oil sanctions on Iran. So this administration has emboldened Iran time and time again. Now, the immediate objective has to be the recovery of American and Israeli citizens, if we can find those hostages, and then the total destruction of Hamas, not just as a terror group, but as a governing entity and a social movement. Now, if Iran tries to escalate but either directly or using Hezbollah, they need to understand that severe consequences will follow, not just from Israel, but from the United States as well. Look, Hamas would not exist as a military entity without Iran. Would Soon Hamas be, won't exist, and Iran needs to decide if it wants to follow in Hamas's footsteps. Would those be military responses or consequences from the U.S.? Nothing should be off the table. And, and Iran and Hezbollah should understand that we have two carrier strike groups in the region for a reason. And we are not going to sit by and let Iran and its cat's paws like Hamas and Hezbollah try to destroy 
Israel as a nation. We will strike back forcefully. We will protect our interests. This administration needs to conduct a complete reversal of its Iran policy. Again, John Kirby talked about our responses to attacks on our troops. The Secretary of Defense said under questioning from me earlier this year that Iran has attacked our troops directly or through its proxies more than 80 times. We've only hit back four or five times. There's little wonder why Iran is so emboldened when this administration is so hesitant to hold it to account. I want to ask you about former President Trump. This week he took a number of swipes at Prime Minister Netanyahu, who's in the middle of a war now. Um, there were, it raised a lot of eyebrows. People were concerned. When this is a person who's been described as the most pro-Israel president in history, he has a lot of actions and a record to show that. Were you surprised by his take and the words of calling Hezbollah, quote, very smart, not that he supports them, but giving them any kind of accolades in the middle of this? Well, he's since said that he stands firmly with Israel and with the prime minister. I understand they've had some personal disagreements, but when you're in the middle of a war, obviously personal disagreements between heads of states uh, pale in comparison to the national interest. I know that President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu have had their differences as well, but he has said that he is going to give unwavering and rock-solid support to the prime minister. What concerns me even more is this administration's actions. As I've said, they've been soft in Iran versus President Trump, who was very, very tough on Iran and st stood squarely with Israel and just look more broadly. It, it wasn't on President Trump's watch that Kabul collapsed in 21. It wasn't on President Trump's watch that Russia invaded Ukraine. It wasn't on President Trump's watch that Iran unleashed its proxy, Hamas, uh, to slaughter Jews in Israel. All these things happened under President Biden because President Biden has been tempting America's enemies with his weakness and his concessions. Very quickly, I want to ask you about the nomination of Jack Lew to be ambassador to the Senate. Expedite that. Do you have questions as Senator Cruz and others have had about Abs that nomination? Absolutely not. Jack Lew is an Iran sympathizer who has no business being our ambassador. It's bad for the United States. It's bad for Israel to have an Iran sympathizer as our ambassador to that country. He helped Iran evade American sanctions, and he lied to Congress about it. He defended the Obama administration's refusal to use our veto at the United Nations in the final days of the Obama administration to protect Israel from anti-Semitic resolutions. I know Democrats are saying that we need to confirm Jack Lew quickly to show our support for Israel. I would say it's the exact opposite. We need to defeat Jack Lew's nomination to show that we have a new approach to Iran. We will track that on Capitol Hill. Senator, thank you for your time always. Thank you, Shannon. Up next, the latest from the front lines as Israel warns of an imminent ground offensive. We'll discuss Israel's objectives in Gaza with a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. He's live next. Fox News Sunday is brought to you by Pacific Life. Over 150 years of strength and stability. Imagine your future with confidence. You are looking live in Gaza this morning as the ground offensive there for Israel, their plans continue to move forward. Uh, they're pushing for more calls for more than a million residents to evacuate from northern Gaza, wanting them to head south as they renew their vow to counter the Hamas attacks with even greater force. Troops remain massed on the Gaza border as Israel's ground invasion again appears imminent. Joining me now, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. Colonel, we appreciate your time this morning. Um, thank you for making time for us. I want to read something from the president that he has put out on social media, our President Biden. He says, we must not lose sight of the fact that the overwhelming majority of Palestinians had nothing to do with Hamas's appalling attacks and are suffering as a result of them. 
How are you all managing? You've, you've made very clear calls for people to leave, to move away from potential hotspots and targets. How are you managing all of that with plans for your further ground offensive? Good morning, Shannon. Indeed, the IDF is on operations are ongoing, and part of those operations are our call for people to evacuate from the north of the Gaza Strip. It's a measure in order to um, safeguard human life, and we are seeing a huge move, movement of people from north to south. And that's despite, despite the fact that Hamas tried to prevent it, both physically and in messages. So um, the operations are actually targeted, as we uh, have, can see over the last nine days now. We're in the midst of day nine here in Israel since the October 7th massacre in, in destro destroying Hamas's capability to ever use the Gaza Strip as a staging ground against us. We are targeting their leaders. We're targeting their terrorists. And yes, we are determined to defeat them. And I would say yeah, we didn't ask for this war, but we are going to win it. What about the issue, the ongoing issue of hostages who are being held in some of these areas? Um, you know, Hamas makes reports that we can't in any way verify or trust. It's just coming from them that there are hostages being killed by the Israeli airstrikes and other incursions. Um, can you tell us anything about efforts to make sure those people are returned home? Uh, well, yeah, I agree. We would be, need to be very, very cautious in listening to anything a organization that is willing to butcher babies in their bedrooms has to say. Uh, of course, it's a, uh, an emotional manipulation try to exert uh, more pressure on Israel as we mount up the pressure on them. Um, the 120 uh, or so uh, hostages are need to be taken care of by Hamas. They are responsible for their well-being. They need to release them immediately. And while I would like to delve into more details, it's obviously it is a very, a very sensitive issue, and we need to respect the efforts that are ongoing in order to try and bring, to bring them home. So I, I guess while I know there's a lot of curiosity about what is actually going on, I think we need to leave it there and leave this type of discussion for those that are trying to uh, working to bring them home. Mm -hmm. Artre Yangst, who is there reporting in southern Israel today, um, showed us that there it was stormy in many areas and talked about the worries about how that may impact plans and operations. Uh, has that been a complication for you today, or would you say plans are proceeding as um, you have planned them to be? Yeah, the operation is ongoing. We are destroying Hamas's capabilities. And I would say we're also, you know, we're focusing on the special forces of Hamas, the Nukba force. Uh, just last night, we were able to identify and target and kill Bilal al-Kidra, who was the commander of the Khan Yunis uh, special forces, the commando unit of Hamas down south, in, uh, who was actually responsible and participated in infiltrating and penetrating the Nirim kibbutz. So we're dealing uh, strikes directly against the, those that are, were involved, but also against the entire institution of Hamas that has been utilized and abused from uh, Yechia Sinwar, who is the mastermind of the massacre, the prime minister of Hamas. And he has subordinated the entire institutions of the government of Gaza to serve terrorism. So we are striking on all of across the spectrum of the institutions of Hamas from the individuals from their terrorist activities. You know, we, we targeted um, drones that had explosive devices that were set up on the rooftops of houses. 
Who does that if they're not willing or interested in sacrificing the people that are actually living in those houses? So, yeah, the mission is ongoing. I would say that when we're looking forward now, we're amassing a huge amount of force on the battleground in uh, the surrounding areas of the Gaza Strip. They are um, combined forces, uh, uh, special forces, infantry, artillery, uh, the tanks, all different types of units uh, that are preparing for a, a ground mobilization if the government so instructs and we need to be prepared for that eventuality Uh, you know we know how to operate in all types of weather Mm -hmm. and conditions and we will continue until hamas is defeated well colonel we know that your prime minister has warned the people as you all have that this may be a long and difficult fight Um, so thank you for making time for us in the midst of that colonel we appreciate it thank you good morning shannon all right you can join our parent company in supporting the israel emergency fund Fox Corporation has made a million-dollar donation to the United Jewish Appeal, which is mobilizing to provide urgent relief to those impacted by the atrocities. You can scan the QR code you see there on your screen or visit ujafedny.org. That group is providing support like cash assistance for impacted families, counseling, and equipment for hospitals as well. You've seen them protests erupting on college campuses all across the country over this war, sparking heated protests and clashes. University of Florida President, former U.S. Senator Ben Sass, made a statement that's making headlines. He joins us live next. And former President Trump lashes out at Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We're going to bring in the Sunday panel to discuss the reaction from within the GOP primary field and what looks like a pivot by the former president. Before taking balance of nature. Tensions are rising on college campuses across the United States as student groups speak out in support of either the Israeli or Palestinian people. The divide in the Middle East on full display right here at home. Joining me now, University of Florida President, former Senator Ben Sass. Good to have you with us this morning, sir. Thank you for the invite, Shannon. I want to read a little bit of what you said in your statement. You said what Hamas did is evil. This shouldn't be hard. Sadly, too many people in elite academia have been so weakened by their moral confusion that when they see videos of raped women, hear of a beheaded baby or learn of a grandmother murdered in her home, the first reaction of some is to, quote, provide context and try to blame victims. It is beneath people called to educate our next generation of Americans. I saw a few statements that were quite that clear. What's been the response? You know, Shannon, we're, uh, we have the most Jewish students of any campus in the country at the University of Florida, and we're going to do two things at Florida. We're going to protect our Jewish students, and we're going to protect speech. It really doesn't seem like it should be that hard. Um, You've got, you got so many universities around the country that speak about every topic under the sun, Halloween costumes and microaggressions, but somehow at a moment of the, the most grave, grotesque attacks on Jewish people since the Holocaust, they all of a sudden say there's too much complexity to say anything. It doesn't make any sense to us. And so we just did two basic things. We announced that we're going to protect our Jewish students and we're going to protect speech. There's been a lot of, uh, of focus on Harvard. You are a graduate of that university. Here's what some student groups said in a statement that a number signed on to. We, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. 
There's been a lot of backlash to that. There have been three statements now at last count that I saw from the president there, Claudine Gay. Um, there are some. Here's what she said. Our students have the right to speak for themselves, but none of these groups speaks for Harvard University or its leadership. Some say that wasn't enough of a condemnation of that statement. What do you think? Well, it's not really my my purpose to comment on what's happening on other campuses particularly, but I'll say this in general. There's just way too little education happening on a lot of elite campuses in America right now. Um, there's been such a fo focus on victim ideology for so long and such a little limited focus on actually reading texts. When these university presidents want to say these issues are too complex, I mean, we have, we have raped girls, stolen, uh, kidnapped grandmas. We have a massacre at a concert. We have intentionally targeted schools and babies. This isn't morally complex. It's easy to condemn evil as evil. But if they want to wrestle with complexity, why don't some of these university presidents stand up and actually read the Hamas charter on their campus and then grapple with the call for the genocide and eradication of the Jewish people? Because that's who Hamas is. This isn't gray. We know who Hamas is. And so why don't universities get back to actually educating and help students that are so confused in groups like that have to actually come to terms with the fact that the paraglider imagery, um, these black patches that people at protests around the world are putting on their their shirts as they go to these protests, these, uh, these demonstrations, these are not surprise images. These flow directly from the text of Hamas's charter. And so why don't the universities do a little bit of educating? What do you make of those, including, you know, uh, some prominent uh, alums also, other alums from Harvard, saying that they think some of these students who signed on to this statement, um, that they should have to pay a price, that they want to put them on a no-hire list. I know that you've said free speech is a big priority. So where do you come down on that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a zealous defender of free speech. Our Constitution protects the right of people to make an abject idiot of themselves. Um, it also allows people in the public square to say, wait a minute, you really believe that? You've thought this little about what you want to stand for in the world? So obviously, a lot of 18 and 19-year-olds uh, make a lot of dumb choices, and there are definitely students that are part of groups that didn't know what leadership of their organizations were signing up for. Um, but for far too long, people have just gotten a pass by saying things like, by any means necessary. What does by any means necessary mean at some of these pro-Hamas rallies? It means the targeting of women and children are things that they think are to be countenanced as they try to drive Israel off the map. I think people need a lot more serious wrestling with actual texts and the actual consequences of terror groups that have made clear what their intentions and purposes are relative to the Jewish people. Yeah, and that's what we hope our universities will be for those difficult conversations. Um, ben Sass, University of Florida president, thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Shannon. Time now for our Sunday group. Bloomberg's Washington correspondent, Anne-Marie Hardern. Josh Holmes, former chief of staff to Mitch McConnell. Forbes contributing writer Richard Fowler and Josh Krashauer, editor-in-chief for the Jewish Insider. Welcome to all of you. So let's start where we left off there with the college campuses. Josh, what do you make of this? I mean, what, you know, Sass is saying there essentially is that people aren't educated. They're, they're making conversations and decisions about something they maybe have not actually spent time investigating. Well, it's a pretty remarkable scene we've seen in the last week where you have functionally pro-Hamas groups on college campuses in major cities cheering on some of the most devastating barbaric terrorism that have been on the images of all of our, our news channels these last couple, these last week. And, you know, it would be the equivalent of having, like, neo-Nazis marching on, on, on campuses and having university presidents not saying much at all about it. So there is an outrage. Uh, you're hearing it not just from students, Jewish students, all students. 
uh, a lot of alumni, a lot of, lot of trustees are wondering what the heck is going on on some of our most elite campuses in the country. I thought, you know, former Senator Sass, the president of, of Florida, was one of the outliers. He was one of the few uh, presidents of a university that really put it, put, it, put it bluntly. But it makes you wonder what kind of education uh, and, 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 frankly, what kind of, you know, I know Sass talked about free speech, but uh, Hamas is a terrorist group. The United States views Hamas as a terrorist group. So there may be some legal consequences down the road for fomenting and, and excusing some of this terrorism. Well, Richard, what I was um, struck by is we've had, you know, a number of reporters out at these different protests, whether on campuses or just in city streets, for people who don't believe that what was perpetrated last week actually happened. I mean, how do we communicate with young people about the realities of this situation? I think we do have to communicate the reality of the situation because whether you like it or not, we have to acknowledge that Hamas is a terrorist organization. And much of the terrorism and their brutality is put upon Palestinians, right? Think about since they were elected the party to run Gaza, they've done brutality and harm to their own people that they're, that they're supposed to be in charge of. And I think we have to communicate that, but it also requires people understanding that in Israel, there are people who all live together. Palestinians live next to Jewish folks, they live next to Christian folks, and they live symbiotically. And I think that's the most important thing to communicate in this moment, especially as we barrel towards what seems to be a conflict that's going to last for a very long time. And this is a live look, just so folks know that we've got um, what's happening there this morning as airstrikes continue, the ground offensive is gearing up. Um, this has actually been uh, shown us a little bit of a split within the GOP 2024 primary field as well, because foreign policy seems to be one of the areas where there is some daylight between some of these candidates. Here's Vivek Ramaswamy going after Nikki Haley, who was, of course, our ambassador to the U.N. and is very familiar with the players in this situation. He thinks that she's been too pro-war. I worry she will lead us to World War III. Shouting and screeching, finish them, finish them, without a clear plan, isn't coherent for the United States. We need to be cool-headed and rational in actually advancing American interests. Josh, what do you make of this, this split with some of the candidates now going after each other? Yeah, I mean, this, this is where you separate the wheat from the chaff, right? This is, this is, you set the rhetoric aside and you have serious world events like this and you can tell what candidates are capable of dealing with this on the world stage. A very serious situation, obviously. And then what we just saw there. Um, I think what started in Milwaukee with the debate that Nikki Haley had and that confrontation that she, she had with Vivek on that stage ballooned into this sort of movement behind her candidacy where now you see a, a world event like this. I don't think there's any question in the minds of most Republican primary voters that Nikki Haley is somebody who could handle this kind of situation. She said remarkable clarity. I'm uncertain where there are a number of other candidates where they actually stand. Of course, everybody entirely rejects what's, what Hamas uh, mm -hmm. is perpetrating and what's happened to the Jewish people. That is a commonality. What you would do about it is an entirely different set of circumstances. And there is sort of only a few candidates that boil down into that category. And Nikki Haley is one of them. Well, and I touched on this with Senator Cotton, but former President um, Trump, uh, this is how the New York Times talks about his recent conversations this week. He said he's frequently sought to cast himself as a champion for Israel, but he's maligned Mr. Netanyahu on multiple occasions in recent days. Well, then, at the end of the week on Truth Social, he said, hashtag I stand with Israel, hashtag I stand with Bibi. I mean, he took a lot of heat over those initial comments. He did. He not only went after and criticized Benjamin Netanyahu for what he says, they didn't back him when he went after Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian commander, years ago when he was uh, in the White House, but also he called Hezbollah, which is another Iranian-backed, uh, what the U.S. would deem a terrorist group uh, in Lebanon, he called them very smart. So uh, the foreign president is taking a lot of heat from this administration. Andrew Bates came out saying this is 
unbelievable that you would see a former president talk about an ally like Netanyahu and Hezbollah like this, but also within the Republican primary, you're seeing a lot of candidates like Governor DeSantis now really go on the offensive and tack Trump for these comments. Well, more of that to come. Um, panel, do not go far away because we've got this too. Been 12 days without a Speaker of the House. Will the GOP consolidate behind Jim Jordan? He's chair of the Judiciary Committee or... Is there another name about to be in the mix? We're going to ask the panel what to expect this week next. Are you sick of UTIs? We'll get there. We have now very little time and under much more difficult circumstances because the world is on fire. I think I can bring our team together. Mixed reaction from Republicans on Capitol Hill as the House has gone almost two weeks now without a speaker. Unclear if the latest nominee, Jim Jordan, will be able to get the votes together this weekend, get over the finish line. We are back with our panel. All right, Amory, messy is what they say about well, this. Well, yeah, you'll hear Republican lawmakers talk about the fact that this is the sausage making in real time. Um, a lot of people say this is incredibly messy. We still don't have a Speaker of the House. At the meantime, November 17th, we have a government shutdown. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pressure, even though the administration has the funds right now to support Israel. There's a lot of pressure to get some sort of legislation through, some supplemental aid for Israel through. But even with all of that pressure, the Republicans still continue to come up short. And the issue, Shannon, is who can get to 217? When you look at someone like Jim Jordan, that now seems to be the designate, well, he doesn't have all of the numbers he needs to get a House floor vote to 217. And you think about it, there's 18 Republicans who are moderate Republicans, and they represent Biden district. Is someone like Jim Jordan going to be toxic for them to take that vote? All right. So, Josh, if it's not Jim Jordan, who's next? I mean, the, this, the group that has publicly said, like, we do not want this guy. There's no way we're voting for him. Who do they want? Well, it's unclear who can get there. I mean, mm -hmm. all this does to me is highlight the abject idiocy of this endeavor from the very beginning. The Matt Gates push to de-seat de McCarthy has now put the entire conference into complete chaos. I, I think... I mean, look, I feel really bad for all of the, the House Republicans who knew this from the very beginning, argued this from the very beginning, said that Gates and crew had absolutely no plan to try to replace the Speaker and thus their ability to govern as a House Republican majority, because they were right. They were right about all of that. And if it's not Jim Jordan, I don't know who. At this point, it is very unclear. I mean, Kevin McCarthy's certainly got more votes than anybody else in this mm -hmm. discussion, which is, I don't know where it goes from here, but it has to land in the place where House Republicans feel enough institutional pressure to go along with somebody who's maybe not their first pick in the name of trying to govern and get something done. If the world events of the last week aren't enough to do that, I don't know what it is. Meanwhile, Richard, I get the sense that Democrats are enjoying watching this play out, like maybe they're doing s'mores over there at their offices, <laughs> like, we're just going to wait until you guys figure this out and, and let you look like you're just a chaotic mess in the meantime. Look, there's no question that it's idiocracy, it's chaotic, but I think there's a very ser there's seriousness in this moment, right? We This is a constitutional office. The House cannot pass a bill. In this moment, as we speak, our Secretary of State's in Egypt trying to negotiate a deal to open up the crossing in Gaza. That deal might include some sort of diplomatic aid. And right now, the United States Congress cannot pass that aid because Republicans can't seem to get their act together to get a Speaker of the House. And, and as we're having this conversation, we're not sure if Jim Jordan can get 217. We're not sure if any member of their caucus mm -hmm. at this point can get 217. This is a very serious moment for America. This is a very serious moment for democracy. The Congressman at the beginning of the segment said, democracy is messy. At this point in time, we can honestly say because of Republican control of the House, it's dysfunctional. Well, and Josh, there is now this whisper. It hasn't gone away, but it's heating up again. Could Kevin McCarthy return to being the speaker? 
Well, look, we could have a moment where we have more than 15 ballots and no one is elected speaker. Mm -hmm. I, you know, Jim Jordan, it's kind of amazing how far the Republican caucus has moved to the right, where the, the founding member of the, of the Freedom Caucus is now the, the front runner, though I think he has a lot of hurdles. There mm -hmm. are a lot of votes against him in caucus. It's hard to see, as Anne-Marie was saying, that you know, there are 18 Republicans in blue districts. That's going to be a tough, tough vote for them to support someone like Jim Jordan. But look, we could go on and on without a speaker, and there's going to be a moment where you know, we'll, hear, we'll hear Kevin McCarthy's name again. Mm -hmm. Hakeem Jeffries is talking about having some kind of power-sharing mm -hmm. arrangement. I don't see that happening, but like, we could be in pretty, pretty uh, extreme circumstances where you just need to have someone in place to govern the country. Yeah. Any chance they do any kind of power sharing agreement? I mean, it seems highly unlikely as divided as they are on really big issues. Yeah, it seems very unlikely to me. I mean, look, this is all. Would that be a wake up call, though, for Republicans? Like, all right, we got to pick somebody. <laughs> I don't know what that would do for anybody. Honestly, it, it just giving away your House majority, your ability to govern doesn't seem like a great sort of campaign slogan for our ability to govern in 24 mm -hmm. and beyond. And so I think there's a lot of peril in that. Any I, other names you think will come up? I, I don't think so, but I tend to agree with that. I think in a, in a power-sharing agreement, Republicans are basically saying, make us the minority party in 2024, and I think the American people might do that. Well, yeah, they may answer the call. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Right I mean, now, he's they kind can of give him some authority for at least maybe 30, 30 60 days to mm -hmm. get through these really pressing issues. Until we run out of money again. And we'll be reporting on that as it happens. All right, panel, thank you very much. We'll see you next Sunday. Up next, take a look at a special way the Texas State Fair is making sure that everyone <laughs> can get in on the fun. We just want to create an environment that folks from all walks of life can enjoy. Always lived in California. Three people were injured after a shooting at the State Fair of Texas in Dallas. Check out this video from social media showing the chaos in the moments right after the shooting as people ran for cover. Police arrested one person. The three people shot are expected to survive. And a Dallas City Council member says that shooting was sparked by a conflict between two people who knew each other. All right, we were there on the ground just days ago because we wanted to bring you this unique story. Starts here. The flashing lights and loud sounds at the fair are not appealing to everybody. So we sent Fox News senior correspondent Casey Stiegel out to show us how the Texas State Fair is welcoming folks from all walks of life. It is today's Sunday special. At first, you may not notice what's different at the State Fair of Texas, but what is not here now can make all the difference for some fairgoers. This is an opportunity that we started five years ago for folks to be able to come out and enjoy the State Fair of Texas in a less overwhelming environment than they're used to. It's called Sensory Friendly Mornings, and for a few hours each Wednesday, all the flashing lights are turned off. Loud sounds on rides muted. And even big techs. Welcome to the State Fair. Texas. Speaks a little softer. There are quiet spaces if you need to take a break. Some of my individuals, um, the lights, the loud noises really bother them, and they go into what we call being triggered, and so their families aren't able to get them out here. To give you a sense of how quiet things are now, all you have to do is stick around and wait until the sensory-friendly hours are over. Then... One, two, three, three! That is when the real action...
action begins. The lights are flashing, the sound is all around, and the environment becomes electric. At times, it could be jarring for anyone, but for some, the fair's intensity would be a deal breaker until now. They see it on TV and they want to do it just like everybody else. And when they have the noise and the lights, they can't. And so this is giving them an opportunity to be like everybody else's, which is what they want to do. Oh, look at that. The sensory-friendly mornings have worked so well, other fairs are now calling, wanting to do the same thing. At the end of the day, we just want to create an environment that folks from all walks of life can enjoy. And to just have an even more impactful initiative is super awesome to us. In Dallas, Casey Stiegel, Fox News. What a beautiful program. By the way, the Texas State Fair runs through October 22nd. And a quick note, my podcast, Live in the Bream, drops this morning. This week, I sat down with Joel Rosenberg to talk about the reality of his experience as a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen living in Israel over the last week, what they're experiencing there. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a safe week. We'll see you next Fox News Sunday. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.